Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. My guest today is Faisal Atani, is a senior fellow at the Middle East programs at the Atlantic Council and an adjunct professor of Middle East politics at George Washington University. Is a frequent um, uh, guest here on the uh, Provcast, who specializes in uh, you know, Middle East studies, specifically uh, Syria and um, Lebanon and Jordan and Iraq. And uh, his counsel is always uh, enjoyed and illuminating. So, Faisal, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to uh, have you on to kind of have a conversation. Uh, basically, we could almost entitle uh, "Remember Syria." You know, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, um, the ongoing uh, crisis that I think is, is still exists uh, in the country of Syria. Much of the United States has moved on. Uh, Syria doesn't really take much uh, prominence in headlines. Uh, what with the Iranian crisis, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit, you know, from your vantage point, um, you know, where we stand at this moment um, uh, in Syria. The, the war is largely declared over, except there are still areas of intense fighting. Um, and there is still the, the kind of fomenting danger of uh, these uh, kind of radicalist groups that have gone underground now and are um, uh, still, I think, a threat to uh, Middle East peace, a threat to uh, Israel, a threat to um, uh, Syrian stability. So talk a little bit about, you know, reminding kind of people where we're at and, and what is still at stake in Syria. We've, we've definitely entered a new chapter of the conflict, but the conflict is not finished. This started as a conflict between uh, Bashar al-Assad and his regime and kind of mainstream, widespread, broad-based insurgency. That insurgency, which sought to remove him and essentially sought regime change, has failed to do that. And we can say that Bashar al-Assad, for the foreseeable future, is militarily secure, thanks largely to help from Russia and Iran. So that phase is done, or at least for now done. Uh, but other things are going on in the country, which is still pretty pretty extreme upheaval. There's a, a significant chunk of it, first of all, that's held by a variety of uh, kind of pro-Turkish or Turkish-influenced militias. There are also Al-Qaeda-linked extremists in this province called Idlib, and that's where most of kind of major combat now is. Assad and his sponsors are trying to take it back. They're taking a lot of casualties, uh, and uh, it's not clear whether or not they can take it at an acceptable cost for now. And again, Turkey's kind of mired in that as well. So it complicates the geopolitical situation. Second of all, a third of the country is still occupied by American troops, uh, who together with a largely Kurdish-led local coalition are in control of those resources, that territory, and kind of using it as leverage against the regime and its allies, or denying it rather, the resources and land and legitimacy that would come with reconquering it. And the third dimension, now that ISIS is out of the way, is a very serious socioeconomic problem in the parts of Syria that are controlled by the Assad regime. Uh, That's partly a result of destruction from the war and casualties, but also international isolation, or should I say Western and Arab isolation, Uh, because of the regime's behavior and refusal to make political concessions to the opposition. And that's something the United States is still very much pushing for. Uh, And as long as that goes on, Syria will not be able to rebuild and resettle its millions of displaced people, even if the regime wanted to do that. So it is a situation of decay in some places and stalemate in others. I wouldn't say the conflict is over. 
Uh, I would say that as far as we're concerned, ISIS is over, as far as we're concerned, assuming it can't reemerge in these circumstances. And therefore, it's dropped off our radar a bit. And that's understandable from kind of public interest point, point of view, but, uh, but in terms of raw security implications, they're very real. So talk a little bit about the, um, you know, one of the arguments that we continually, um, uh, one of the points, I guess I should say, that we want to uh, emphasize is just the interconnectedness of, of the Middle East. And oftentimes, and I think the Trump foreign policy has a tendency to uh, um, kind of reward this this type of thinking is uh, more and more we see a transactional uh, kind of methodology of foreign policy. We're going to tackle you know, one little problem at a time. You know, let's let's tackle the ISIS problem. Let's tackle the Iranian problem. Let's tackle you know the Saudi Arabian problem. And it's like, but each one of these, and especially in the Middle East, it's it's this web. It's this tapestry. When you pull on one string, other strings begin to move. And so, relate a little bit and and show like w- the way in which Syria has landed uh, with uh, Bashar al-Assad still in power, uh, the country arguably still failing, um, you know, relate that to the bigger picture of, of the Middle East. Are they able to find, um, uh, you know, uh, security partners? Are they able to find economic partners uh, among their neighbors? Uh, what is Iran's influence in, um, in Syria right now vis-a-vis like, uh, you know, Hamas? What is, um, uh, and, and other actors? So talk a little bit about, um, uh, where Syria is uh, landing in relation to its neighbors. Yeah, uh, you know, as if the Syrian conflict itself is not complicated enough at the domestic level, it gets very complicated once you start looking at the networks and the webs of interest. Uh, There's a few converging fault lines that run through this geography. The first is competition between Iran and the Arab states, especially Saudi Arabia. That was especially strong in the middle of the kind of peak of fighting, 2014, 2015, Uh, It has faded now because I think the Saudis have realized this is a losing game for them. Uh, However, they are still very much on board with, for now, isolating the regime and definitely isolating the Iranians, and they're happy the Americans are doing that in Syria. Uh, But that led to a great deal of escalation of the conflict. I think the Saudis sort of conceded that ground to them. They're now busy fighting in Yemen against another group of Iranian, Iranian proxies. And the reason Iran figures into this at all is that Bashar al-Assad is Iran's only Arab ally and has been for, I mean, that regime has been allied with Iran since the early 80s. And that's a long time for many reasons. Uh, One of those reasons is that uh, the uh, supply line for and strategic depth of the militia Hezbollah, which is based in Lebanon, essentially runs through Syria. And Hezbollah, in order to survive and continue the fight against Israel, needs for there to be at least a non-hostile regime in Damascus, uh, which is the reason Iran intervened in this conflict to begin with. And through that intervention, Iran has built up local alliances, local security and cultural interests, economic ones as well, and they're therefore present in significant numbers on the ground, them and their militia network. And that's how the Iranians operate in the region, through these proxy groups. So that's the first one. Uh, The second one is a... U.S.-Russian competition, uh, which uh, borders between kind of hesitant cooperation or deconfliction, rather. Uh, and then the split is over Russian support for Bashar al-Assad, very strong, robust military support. Of course, we are not opposing that militarily. And as far as I understand, getting Russia out of Syria is not a U.S. objective. 
Uh, but nonetheless, you know, there's this kind of cold competition between the two, with the United States pushing for political change in Syria, and Russia essentially saying no. I mean, not in those words, but but opposing it. So those are kind of two big geopolitical uh, uh, fault lines. There is another one, which is more complicated still, which is the role of Turkey. So Turkey has very important interests in Syria. On the one hand, Turkey has been fighting a Kurdish insurgency in its own borders for decades. And now an offshoot of that insurgency has basically set up a home base in Syria under U.S. military protection. Uh, so that's not good for the Turks. The second thing is that Turkey has interests in the Arab areas along its border of Syria, not starting with the fact that they host a couple of million refugees, but also because of historic and just geopolitical and security ties. So the Turks have an interest in uh, kind of derailing that Kurdish project in Syria and an interest in making sure they control some territory and population in northern Syria, which puts it at odds with the regime that wants to take it back and its Russian and Iranian sponsors. And now Turkey has to maintain this delicate balance between opposing the United States strategy in Syria without overly antagonizing the United States and opposing regime gains in Syria without coming into conflict with Russia and Bashar al-Assad and Iran. There are probably some sub-fault lines, but these are the main ones. Right. Well, there's only so much time we have, I guess, to, <laughs> to uh, unpack some of them. Well, one of the interesting things that you said that I'd like to unpack a little bit is the um, the role of, uh, of Hezbollah and, and kind of how uh, Iran, uh, via proxies, uh, infiltrates kind of Middle Eastern countries. And when you see, I think you see this, saw this in uh, Lebanon, where uh, if you have a central government that's weak, if you have uh, an area of the country over which maybe it has marginal kind of control, like for in Lebanon, you could look at like the Bekaa Valley, um, you know, Hezbollah uh, successfully uh, during the uh, you know, 2000s became not just like some sort of like terrorist element, but a political force and was, you know, funded by Iran, but also began to occupy seats in parliament and offer social services as almost like a de facto government in, in a region, you know, in Lebanon. So you see, you know, Iran's influence is not just uh, – uh, has a practical impact that really gets to like the basic needs of of governance of having some sort of rule of law if you could even call it that uh, providing basic services like you know electricity and and food supplies and and that kind of thing some amount of justice so um, if you look into Syria and, and can break that down like how to what extent is you know the, the central government and Bashar al-Assad actually in control of Syria what areas of it are you know ripe for the taking for uh, groups uh, like Hezbollah and, and uh, uh, Iran-backed um, uh, kind of efforts to uh, slowly kind of just, you know, dice and, and, and carve it up, Swiss cheese, you know, where they're just like little pockets of Iranian control uh, where, you know, they, if anything, are almost a de facto, you know, uh, state within a state. What does that look like for Syria? That's an excellent question. Uh, the Lebanon example is probably, not probably, definitely the most successful example of Iran's attempts to export the revolutionary ideology and build up local proxies. But it's a bit, it's actually quite different from the Syria case. First of all, in Lebanon, uh, about a third of the country is uh, Shia Muslim, uh, which is you know, one of the two major factions of Islam. And Iran is Shia Muslim. 
and in fact, the same kind of Shia Muslim as, as, as the Lebanese Shia population. And the combination of that religious identity with the Shia population's kind of collision with the Israeli military over decades in southern Lebanon gave the Iranians a golden opportunity, essentially, to build up an enormous amount of goodwill within the population uh, in an area where the state of Lebanon itself was weak and divided, etc. Not just because there had been a civil war and had been weakened, like the regime in Syria, but that's because just the nature of Lebanon is fragmented and it's very hard to put together a strong central government. So the Iranians were able to build a really sophisticated presence and a very capable proxy group in Hezbollah in the Lebanese context. Syria is a bit different. Uh, for one, there are barely any Shia in Syria. And the, uh, the, uh, the, sect, the sectarian identity of the leadership is Alawite, uh, it's another an offshoot of, of Shia Islam, but not Shia Islam, and certainly not the Shia Islam that pertains to the Iranian revolution. That's ideologically incompatible with, with, the, Iranian, with the Iranian ideology. The rest of the country is mostly Sunni Muslim, uh, which, you know, obviously problematic for the Iranians in terms of spreading that particular, that particular ideology. That is a major handicap. The second major handicap is that there is still a Syrian state in the sense that it still controls a lot of the territory of the country. It has intelligence and security forces, and it does not. It is not prone to or weakened by the political compromises that Lebanon imposes on political factions. The regime is limited by economic and military capacity. That has that problem. I believe it is their intention to retake the entire country. Having said that, what the Iranians have done is, rather than what Hezbollah eventually did in the 90s and 2000s, which is kind of infiltrate the Lebanese state and set up allies within it so that it protects itself militarily and economically and politically, the Iranians are just doing a parallel thing. Uh, so it's like a state beside a state, not a state within a state. And they are not building that complicated or sophisticated infrastructure. What they've decided to do is build up local militias and prioritize certain geographies, especially along the border with Lebanon, near the Damascus area, and south near Israel, to the extent they can get away with it. And they've basically said, this is our area, this is what we control, and as far as that is concerned, we do whatever we want. We don't listen to the regime. Uh, and the regime, on the other hand, has the backing of Russia as well. Lebanon did not have a Russia. And the, the Russians are not about to cede control of Syria or influence over the Syrian government to the Iranians. That's not going to happen. And the old major superpower ally of Syria has been the Soviet Union and then Russia. Uh, and that's where the real institutional connections come in. So it's a bit different uh, and not, I think not as promising for the Iranians as, as Lebanon was. So do you see, uh, I mean, let's pivot a little bit to Iran and that, you know, uh, the, the current Iranian crisis, often the, the whole rationale behind the United States withdrawing from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, the Iran deal, you know, as it's called, um, is the idea of, of basically limiting um, Iran's ability not only to engage in the larger economic community, but to experience any kind of like major economic um development that could then, you know, those uh, dollars could, could get in the hands of terrorists or could fund their efforts in, in Syria or wherever else in the Middle East. 
Um, <clears throat> do you, uh, I mean, even just uh, to the extent to what you just said, is that uh, the threat that the United States and that the president um, and others within his administration are, are constantly, um, uh, you know, ringing the bell about it? Is that threat a reality? Is is there a, a threat <clears throat> uh, that... Um, uh, Iran poses, uh, you know, through its proxies in in Syria. Um, I mean, obviously, we have in Yemen. Obviously, we have in um, 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 uh, Lebanon and, and other places. But um, what is it? Uh, is there a threat there in Syria that it poses um, uh, for, like, in terms of like a proxy state? So we are in a, a sort of a zero sum competition with Iran in um, in the Middle East, given that it's a hostile power. Whatever they take, we kind of perceive as having lost, or at least our allies perceive as having lost it. I don't think that their presence in Syria seriously changes their capabilities. Uh, But what it means is that, as far as the rest of the region is concerned, there's a kind of arc that runs from the eastern Mediterranean through Lebanon, through Syria, through Iraq, to Iran, that is now within Iran's geopolitical space. Uh, If you want to be dramatic, you could call it the Iranian empire, as it has always been in that area, but under this particular ideological uh, configuration. Yemen is a bit different. Yemen is sort of a way for them to make life difficult for the Saudis at a low cost, uh, but it's not a core territory for them. These are the core territories. A low cost to them, but a high cost to the yeah. Yemeni. High cost, yes, high cost right, to Yemen and, right. and Saudi Arabia, yeah, right. but, but, not, uh, but not, to, uh, not to Iran. Uh, so, you know, it's definitely problematic. Uh, there are obviously kind of organic limits on what they can do. You know, Turkey is a major, it's not a rival, but it's a competitor and alternative. Uh, They're probably not too upset that Turkish-U.S. relations are poor at the moment. Uh, The the Persian Gulf is still under an American military umbrella uh, and kind of off limits to, to the Iranians. And Israel remains a powerful adversary. And we can see the degree to which they're able to act with impunity against Iranian military assets in Syria. They've launched hundreds of attacks on on them over the past few years, and Iran has essentially not retaliated. And they haven't done that because they don't want that costly conflict. Uh, so yes, they're problematic. Uh, they are a much weaker power than the United States. Uh, so that remains the case, and that ultimately comes down to a question of how much of a cost and risk is the United States willing to bear in that confrontation with with the Iranians. So that sets up an interesting question and I think an interesting uh, conversation in that, uh, you know, we see the United States uh, through the presidency of, of Donald Trump, uh, you know, changing the policy towards Iran, being com- becoming far more aggressive, withdrawing from the JCPOA and, and instituting rounds of sanctions that uh, get kind of exponentially worse about every um, six months, the goal to not only, uh, you know, sanction um, Iran in in regards to their uh, development uh, and enriching of uranium, but also to prevent them from engaging in the global economic community, to close off and and penalize uh, central banks and other countries that do business with Iran, companies that would, you know, invest in anything that even tangentially, you know, gets close to being involved uh, with Iran. Um, and so what we see, and uh, I think increasingly, is Iran is, is feeling this. It's finally some of these sanctions that have been happening over the last year, basically, have, have begun to set in. And th- what we're seeing is they're kind of beginning to act out, right? They're beginning to kind of um, act out in the Strait of Hormuz. They are... Uh, becoming more and more kind of bucolic in their in their statements and their threats. Uh, so, 
if you were you know kind of looking at a Middle East policy abroad, and you've studied Iraq, you know, kind of specifically, our our um, you know, we look at Iraq and we say, you know, there was there was a time in which we would look at the Middle East and say that, you know, let's just go and, and wipe this lake clean. Let's just provide, you know, provide pressure. If we can remove whatever regime is in place, be it, you know, uh, Bashar Assad or Saddam Hussein or uh, anyone else that, you know, somehow the country will bend its way towards some kind of democratic, you know, system and we could potentially have an ally or a trading partner or whatnot. I think Iran, uh, Iraq rather, you know, disabused us of that. Uh, hopefully. Um, and so w- when you look at U.S. policy uh, vis-a-vis Iran, uh, where do you see the end game? Like, where do you see it going? What do you think the, the administration's uh, ultimate goal is? Um, if it's not some sort of regime change, um, is it just the, the general frustration, the general isolation uh, of Iran um, retarding their ability to uh, develop nuclear weapons? Um at, at what point does this reach a, a, a boiling over point where Iran has nothing to lose? Yeah, good questions. So with any administration, or well, certainly with the last one and this one, there is there are several national security personnel uh, and the president, obviously, and they fall on a spectrum of opinion uh, about the Iranians. Uh, we can definitely say that with the Obama administration, that spectrum was basically ran ran from we need a nuclear agreement with the Iranians so we could avoid a major a major military conflict and therefore let's sanction them and then negotiate with them uh, and that's ultimately what happened uh, to the kind of more optimistic people who felt that maybe an opening with Iran was possible because there are elements in the Iranian political system that are open to a better relationship with the United States, less belligerent regionally, etc. There were people who believed this, and it was not an insignificant uh, current. It didn't happen for many, many reasons. I don't think it was possible, but you know, smart people disagree. Now, you also have a spectrum, um, and that spectrum runs from extremely belligerent, uh, Secretary of State, uh, some people in the National Security Council, people in the State Department, uh, to the president, who I believe is kind of contemptuous of the Iranians and sees no reason to give them anything they don't deserve in his point of view, but is not quite as focused on kind of breaking them as others are, particularly because doing that would increase the risk of a, mil- a real military conflict, which he does not want. And we've seen that. We've seen him back down from Iranian provocations, uh, such as the shootdown of, of the U.S. drone over either international or Iranian waters, depending who you ask. So what that, mean, what that means is that the rest of his team has to kind of navigate this space where their agenda, I believe, is essentially to bring the Iranian economy to its knees and at least maybe force a change in Iranian regional behavior. But if not, well, then whatever. You know, then we, at least we didn't do what the Obama administration did, which is give them a ton of money and let them do what they want. Uh, Iran is an enemy and therefore hurting it and containing it is also an end in itself and doesn't need to be justified, just like with the Soviet Union, for example, because it's an ideological rival. And, uh, and I think, this, uh, I think th- this, uh, this strain of thinking believes that time is very much on America's side here. Uh, America's vastly more powerful. America has unparalleled influence over the global economy. And you know what? If the Iranians want to pick a fight with the United States, then that's their problem. And, and we can hurt them very much if they do that. 
so uh, they're happy to see the Iranians in this position. And I think they see these provocations that the Iranians are doing as an indication that their strategy is working. Uh, now, what happens if there is a major provocation and then things come to a head and the president has to make a decision? I personally think that if you kind of fast forward and you project from where we are on our current track a few years into the future, yes, that gets us in a conflict with Iran one way or the other, whether conventional or proxy, etc. because the, the Iranians cannot sit back and let the economy collapse around them and do nothing about it. That's a bad place for them to be in. I'm sure they don't want a conflict with the United States either. But, you know, that's where we're going, I think. So this seems to be a, uh, I find, kind of a dual uh, utopian kind of conflict. You have, you have kind of you, uh, people who are idealist on the right and people who are idealist on the left that, uh, you know, you could argue that Barack Obama and the, the architects of the JCPOA, John Kerry and others were uh, kind of idealists on the left. Well, if we can just smooth things over, you know, bad actors will not act like bad actors. Let's give them hundreds of, you know, uh, millions of dollars. Should, certainly they won't give it to, you know, Hezbollah or their proxy agents. Uh, maybe we can just, you know, get them into to the world economic system, and uh, they'll choose make to, to make the right decisions, and everything will be okay. That to me is overly idealistic, as as was proven uh, by history. I think you have an idealism almost on uh, an opposite idealism on the right, which kind of sees where um, well, if we take away all benefit, if we take away all uh, uh, any kind of ingratiating, any kind of entering into the uh, world uh, uh, system, if we basically isolate them and kind of beat them down, that they're just going to kind of break down and say, you know what, this revolution that we've been doing for the last forty years just isn't working, and you know we should just we should choose democracy or we should choose some other kind of. You know, let's overthrow the um, Ayatollah and, and, and hold elections. Um, I mean, it seems to me both of those are idealistic and unrealistic, that there is there's nothing that says, I think, in Iran's history, that they would be predisposed to just buckle under and just say, you know, uh, you know what we've been doing is incorrect. Let's give the American system a try. Um, likewise, I don't think well, if you just give them whatever you want and treat them like nothing's wrong, that they'll act in a in a way that's that's helpful for the world community. So, is there is there like a middleist realist kind of track? You know, something that's realistic that looks like containment, but also looks like something that uh, doesn't push us towards uh, active armed conflict. So, whether you're on the left or on the right as a Westerner. You're both kind of supporters of kind of economic orthodoxy of liberal economics and, and internationalism to, to different degrees, but uh, and maybe different flavors. But that's our you know that's our truth, right? Uh, the uh, the left and right share this belief about Iran, insofar as they share uh, the belief that economics. Is kind of transcendent and trumps everything, and that if you offer an economic carrot or you hold an economic stick, then that is a very powerful source of leverage. I do think that that's sometimes the case, uh, but I believe that is only the case when you're asking for something specific and bounded. You know, so if we ask them to stop enriching uranium past three percent or whatever, fine. You know, are they going to let their economy be destroyed? Or are they going to swallow that bitter pill and just stop the enrichment? Uh, and that's fine. They can, they can, Iran can survive without nuclear weapons, so it's okay. Uh, but then if we give them a list of things like, like Secretary Pompeo did, 
which essentially means that they have to dismantle their entire national security strategy uh, and change the nature of the way they govern, uh, that becomes more difficult. Uh, I can say for sure, uh, definitely the Obama approach was going to fail. There was no way. I could not see any scenario in which that would succeed because it would require a change of behavior from the Iranian regime. The uh, current administration's bet is that that would be nice, but that ultimately isn't required for the policy to be successful. What is required is for the regime to fail. And then the onus for what happens then is on the Iranians, uh, whether it's the Iranian people or the regime. Uh, I don't think the regime is going to change its behavior, no matter how much economic damage you impose on it. I don't even remember any regime that fundamentally changed its behavior because of economic pain. Uh, I've seen regimes collapse because of economic pain, but I don't remember off the top of my head that ever happening. Uh, but regimes do get overthrown uh, because of economic pain. Uh, and that ultimately depends on how Iranians are processing their problem. Are they blaming the United States or are they blaming the regime? Uh, I'm not Iranian, nor am I an expert on Iranian domestic political opinion. When I do ask people who are, they tell me they blame both. So I don't know what is that kind of tipping point in which you know, a population decides enough is enough and things need to change. I don't know that. And no one knows, really. I mean, we can do retroactive historical analysis, but we don't really know. Uh, so that's, uh, that's their bet. Their bet is either way, we win. Uh, that's, uh, that's how they see it. And time is on their side. My guest is Faisal Atani. He's a senior fellow at Middle East Programs at the Atlantic Council. Um, we'll return right after this break. Welcome back to the Provcast. Uh, my guest is Faisal Atani. He's the senior fellow at the Middle East Programs Atlantic Council. He's a Middle East uh, uh, politics professor at George Washington University. We've been t- talking about Syria um, and have, uh, as the conflict g- grows, kind of uh, gone out from Syria into Iraq and into Iran and the broader uh, Middle East and, and U.S. policy uh, there. Um, Faisal, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the culture um, in, in the Middle East and talk a little bit about um, Uh, relating it back here to the culture in in the United States is that, you know, the United States has this uh, desire, at least ostensibly, to um, see the type of, uh, you know, democratic, uh, classical, liberal kind of pluralism proliferate out into the world in in one way or another. Uh, We've seen... um, uh, times in which when you have uh, the George W. Bush administration, that become kind of militarized, you know, we're going to do this kind of by force. Uh, Barack Obama was far more kind of indirect and in, in using uh, soft power uh, to kind of um, uh, see that um, uh, proliferate out. Uh, but one of the things that we talked about uh, during the break that was kind of interesting to me is just the idea of um, uh, we, we've been talking a lot over the last um, uh, 30 minutes or so about economics and about politics. And that, uh, you know, the, the foreign policy establishment in the United States and really I would say the international relations kind of establishment abroad is, is 
I would argue, kind of highly secularized and oftentimes treats uh, uh, culture and religion as kind of just a semantic distinction that really is, you know, subservient to uh, the, the bigger realities of economics and, and, you know, whether it's a free market system or a capitalist or, or um, uh, you know, um, uh, socialist. Um, those, those, that's where the real debate is. That's where the real pressure needs to be applied. And then we're really just trying to affect political change. Uh, but the Middle East is different um, in that not only, you know, is a vast majority of the world uh, religious, um, in the Middle East you have a, a theonomic kind of uh, religion that, that predominates in Iran, specifically that it's a country that is founded as an Islamic republic. I mean, it's so religion... Um, is the higher calling that I think supersedes uh, economic discussions uh, for the Iranians and and even uh, political distinctions. So I mean, there the chief political leader is the there's a supreme leader is the Ayatollah is the religious the religious leader there. So talk a little bit about if you can. I mean, uh, just. Um, uh, how the role that you see um, of religion and maybe the United States um, in that they um, uh, their incapacity uh, perhaps to uh, address the realities that exist there um, is that is that a problem is it is it something that you think that we're addressing uh, and to what extent does should the existence of of religion and realities there uh, influence uh, our foreign policy abroad. I think this is uh, this is a shortcoming of the American foreign policy establishment. Having said that, I understand why this is the case, partly because to do foreign policy, like certain things need to be held a bit constant, and you need to be able to explain things and ge- generate consensus. The second part is that this is a really complicated issue, uh, and one that even for Middle Easterners is very hard to kind of pick apart and understand. What is the role of religion in politics? The truth of the matter is in, in, in the Middle East, I mean, most of the world, as you said, is religious. Uh, the Middle East is not, statistically, not any more religious than most of the world. Uh, but when it comes to the relationship between their religion and their politics, uh, that's something that uh, that's A, different across different places, but also changes all the time. In a sense, for example, in the late 19th century and early 20th, the there was... Uh, a social and political and literary movement to essentially push politics out, of, push religion out of politics completely, and uh, much like there was in much of the world, but a bit a bit later, uh, when those ideas reached the Middle East, uh, and uh, and in uh, the kind of post or the early independence eras after World War One and World War Two, these were the dominant political political ideas. They competed with the Islamist idea, but they completely overwhelmed it, uh, and these regimes mostly failed. Uh, they failed to deliver economic prosperity, political freedom, social stability, all the things that a regime needs to do. And therefore, these ideas got delegitimized. Uh, and they also got delegitimized because at the same time as these states were formed, these the, these uh, people and countries collided with the West, whether it was the colonial powers, uh, the European ones, or the United States and Israel, which is seen as a kind of offshoot or junior ally of the West, which further kind of contaminated contaminated these ideas. Uh, now, if we want to ask, uh, is is the religion in the Middle East kind of completely incompatible with them? I don't want to answer that question. I think it's too complicated. I don't know. Uh, maybe somewhere, some places it is, other places it's not. Again, the Middle East is not a monolith. Uh, but we do need to take the, these beliefs into account. Another thing we need to take into account is... Uh, Kind of when we talk about religion, we think about 
you know, doctrine and dogma and, and articles of faith. Uh, but there's other things, too, going on that complicate this equation from the U.S. point of view. And one is the way people identify with one another and identify themselves in the Middle East, whether it's uh, allegiance to clan or sect or sub-geography. I think this is actually also very politically relevant. And we found this out in Iraq, where the, our issue was not, oh, they're Muslims and this is not working. Our issue was with how they related to one another and what their own political identity was. Uh, and those things are there, and they're there in a very tangible way, but you have to have a little bit of nuance and understand the context of the areas you're dealing with. That is something we're not very good at for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, our attention spans are low. Our election cycles are too short. People don't spend enough time in the areas they're deployed. I have no idea why that's the case. Uh, but you know, other imperial powers in the past have done it better than the United States has. But... Uh, I don't know why we don't do it well, but we need to if, we're, if we are to exercise this kind of clout and influence that we want to. So the culture that we, I think, in the United States would like to see, um, you know, proliferate out abroad is, is, I would argue or hope would argue, some kind of classical liberal kind of democratic pluralistic uh, culture. But that in and of itself is, is complicated in the United States at the moment, right? We, we have a, um, uh, a rising tide of, I would argue, illiberalism that uh, is... Uh, you know, seeking to kind of decry uh, pluralism or redefine it in such a way that it's it's becoming uh, more uh, tribal. It's becoming uh, you know less and less uh, tolerant. Whether it's uh, the left and and the secular progressives that are less and less tolerant of of people who would be you know religious, or if it's uh, the right that is less and less tolerant of you know, uh, secular progressives, I guess, um, that there is, um, you know, a, a changing environment in America that what we, it's harder and harder, it seems for us to model what we would like, you know, maybe the rest of the world to be. You, I think, have a unique position um, as as an immigrant, as someone who is um, a Muslim in America and uh, is, uh, you know, there are um, Muslim members of Congress right now that uh, have all number of opinions, and those opinions are, you know, kind of attracting the ire of President Trump. He's saying, "Well, go back, you know, to where you where you came from if you don't like this country." And um, it seems to be that there's uh, increase an increasing tension in the United States. I'd love to know just your, you know, your own experience of how you've you've seen um, the beauty of American pluralism kind of play out, and where you see the kind of condition of American uh, liberal culture at the moment? Yeah, for first, let me, let me start by saying that my, my own personal experience, I've been quite fortunate. I mean, I, I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm working in national security. There's also some people here, and we all share quite a bit in common, you know, which kind of makes all of this a bit easier on right, everybody, but this is not kind of scalable, a scalable thing. Washington, D.C. is not America. Uh, having said that, I've, I've never had personally bad experiences in, in the United States, but I do hear what's going on. And, uh, and I'm, I'm very aware of it. I think what's, what's striking about this level of polarization today is a couple of things. First of all, that uh, Arab Muslims uh, used to, I'm not sure this is still the case, I don't think so, used to vote overwhelmingly Republican in the United States, partly I think because Islam is very economically pro-market and conservative, and partly because of social, social conservatism, and partly because that's also, in a sense, an immigrant thing, you know? Uh, these people came from difficult areas, got to the United States, they feel fortunate to be here, and Muslims in America have done actually disproportionately well 
uh, economically and, and academically and professionally. Uh, so they, they've had an objectively good experience and, and the country has been good to them, uh, at least in objective measures. On the other hand, what's also interesting is these kind of Muslim, uh, the Muslim congresswomen that are getting so much notoriety. Uh, when, uh, when I listen to their discourse, uh, despite the fact that one of them wears a hijab, uh, they sound much more to me like the campus left, I uh, go up in Beirut, then they sound like Muslim political figures. I mean, I know what Islamists sound like, and that's not it. This is a kind of strange overlap between the far left and kind of what I would call actually third worldism, not even Islamism, something, something a bit different. Uh, so, I mean, unfortunately, of course, I know what the optics are, which is that this is what Muslims think and that they're all on the far left. Uh, that's inaccurate. Uh, it's uh, it's troubling, of course, that the far right has decided that they just don't like Muslims. Full stop. So it doesn't matter what you think or you know what your beliefs are. No one's no one's gonna. You don't have a chance to explain it, and no one's picking it apart. Uh, having said that, look, I do think that uh, pluralism can mean a lot of things, uh, and I've experienced it in different places because uh, I lived in the United Kingdom, I lived in Europe, uh, I lived in several Middle East countries including the most pluralistic one, Lebanon. I lived here. Uh, pluralism in Lebanon, you know, where, where I come from, is simply the idea that uh, you tolerate each other. That's it. You're a Christian, I'm a Muslim, I'm not going to convince you to be a Christian, forget it. You know, or vice versa. And we've all been stuck here and we've got nowhere else to go. So life goes on. Uh, that's what I l understood about the, the term tolerance when I was growing up. Uh, it's not, it's not hostile, and it's not not hostile. It's just the understanding that there are different people, and that people are going to be different and stay out of their way when it comes to that stuff. Uh, when I lived in the United Kingdom, Europe, I found something a bit different. Uh, what uh, what happened in these places where you had differences uh, with all the immigrant populations that I think were much more extreme than the difference between a Muslim and a Christian in Lebanon. Uh, who both come from, at the end of the day, the same basic culture of the Eastern Mediterranean and the Arab world. Uh, but there, the idea of tolerance was to just have many, many groups of people, each of them doing their own thing, and call that a kind of collective. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't want to get into, you know, European immigrant politics. That's their problem. Let's see what happens. I think there are problems with it. The United States is different. Uh, even if it doesn't want to admit it is. Uh, what happens in the United States is this is a very big country, very bountiful, uh, still underpopulated. The economy is healthy. When you come to the United States, you know, with the exception of like, you know, crazy people who will buy, you know, plot of land in the middle of nowhere and do whatever, you are being assimilated into the American system. Uh, now, whether or not this is kind of a classical liberal because it's linked to Christianity or not. Yes, you could make that argument. It's interesting. Uh, but uh, when people do that, I always remember this story, maybe apocryphal, is that the name for it? Maybe false about Neil Bohr, the scientist, uh, who's sitting outside his patio with a horseshoe hung above him for good luck. And his friend shows up and he's like, I thought you didn't believe in this stuff. Why do you have a horseshoe? And he says, well, I've been told that it works even if you don't believe in it. Uh, which, uh, to me, if that's where classical liberalism came from, fine. But being a Christian is not 
a necessity for understanding and respecting and absorbing it. And you have to absorb some of your society's values in order to be able to function. I don't, there is such thing as a place and people and beliefs, you know, just like you can't walk into a Sunni neighborhood in Beirut and start chanting Shia stuff or waving a Hezbollah flag, you're going to get in trouble. You have to learn to live with other people and adapt some common principles for it to be a country. I think the United States is great at that, actually, which is why I think all this kind of churn and anxiety over immigration, particularly Muslim immigration, which is not that big, is a bit strange. Uh, but it's there. Uh, and uh, I don't feel it stops me from being part of this place. You know, I work in national security in Washington, for God's sake. So uh, I'm as American as anyone else. And the idea that I'm not, I find to be ridiculous. But, you know, we are going through this, you know, fit or seizure of some sort in, uh, in uh, global liberal thinking. Uh, and it's worrying. Do you see a, a big disconnect between, um, you know, the Twitter sphere and kind of the the Beltway and inside the Beltway environment and the rest of America? Like, if you travel around, uh, and this is this is difficult for for me and for a lot of us who, uh, you know, are ex- almost exist in this in this um, s- surreal space uh, that floats above the uh, America, where you know there are arguments and, and and feuds and fights and massive discussions and and you know rhetorical wars back and forth. Uh, but the rest of the country is doesn't even know it exists. It isn't even falling. If they're not on social media or if they're not plugged in or reading the New York Times or whatever, they're completely unaware that it's going on. Um, and they're just trying to get along with their neighbor or not get along with their neighbor. So, I mean, what as you live in the United States, as you travel around, like what is your kind of perception there? Do you think that's accurate? Do you think that there's uh, that we make sometimes too much of these identity politics, uh, that they're really maybe not as pervasive as, um, as we would like to think if we're just observing Twitter or watching the, the uh, social media networks? Yeah, look, for sure, they're not as pervasive as they are in social media. Uh, and, and in other words, that I have no doubt about uh, from personal experience. The, the problem is, of course, that when, whenever you have a kind of divided situation, the mass of people aren't the most influential people. It's the people who really care and, you know, are pushing the boundaries on the edges of things that kind of push us all, polarize us, polarize everybody. And that's kind of p- part of the point. Uh, having said that, look, uh, I, I, I travel a lot in the United States uh, with the explicit purpose of meeting people and spending time with them. As someone who looks, you know, Uh, Maybe, you know, not conventionally Muslim, but definitely Middle Eastern or not from here, you know, in in certain places. Uh, And here's my, here's been my experience. Uh, I have never had a negative or hostile experience anywhere. Uh, What I have been looked at, like, what the hell is this guy doing here? But you know what? Fair enough. I mean, uh, that's how I would look at some white dude walking into my neighborhood in, in, or in the village in Lebanon. I'm not going to say Beirut. Beirut is very cosmopolitan. But there are a lot of places in the world where you'd be looked at like that. In fact, everywhere. Uh, and, uh, and I don't expect that suddenly the differences between them and I are going to be erased. I don't want that. And in my opinion, and in my point of view, what's interesting about being in conservative America is I don't think anyone expects me to change my mind about anything. Uh, I think they have taken for granted, or are more likely to take for granted than liberal America, that this just, this guy is just not like us. And of course, I'm like them enough to share this country with them, but otherwise, no. And that's okay. I mean, it doesn't have to be 
that everybody has to be the same or that there has to be kind of an assimilated culture where we all share the same beliefs. America's big enough for different people as long as certain basic things are agreed on. And for the most part, I think, I think the country has reached more social harmony than many other places in the world, despite the fact that, uh, you know, it's all over the place and we're kind of terrified of it all the time. I've not had a bad experience. I've had plenty of good ones and plenty of no one cares. But uh, I've had interesting conversations about Islam. I've had uh, interesting conversations about the Middle East. And uh, different than what I have in, you know, the East Coast or more kind of liberal parts of the United States where there is a kind of orthodoxy and people see it as a universal orthodoxy that we can all participate in equally. Uh, and certainly I can absorb and participate in a lot of it. Yeah, of course. But, uh, but not all of it because my lived experience and my history and my background are not the same. So, uh, and that's, I think that's okay. And it, and it needs to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise... No. Otherwise, life will be unbearable. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, I, I hope we're not reaching that unbearable point, you know, in, in our culture right now. But uh, uh, we're glad to have you here. Faisal Atani is a senior fellow at Middle East Programs Atlanta Council, a professor at uh, George Washington uh, University, and a frequent guest here on the Provcast. Faisal, thanks for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.